Then Israel said to him, Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the Hebron Valley, and he went to Shechem. A man found him there, wandering in the field, and asked him, What are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they are pasturing their flocks? They moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, Oh look, here comes that dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into the one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into the pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the long-sleeved robe that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, without water. Well, good morning. Good morning. Let's, let's begin with prayer. Good to see you. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you speak to us through your word. It's an amazing thing to think that the Lord of the universe, the one who is so knowledgeable that it is beyond searching out, and yet you communicate to us. You want to walk with us. I want to thank you specifically today that you walk with us in difficult times, and I pray that you would bring encouragement and strength to those who are experiencing that season in their lives, and that you'd also prepare the rest of us who maybe aren't in this season, but are headed for a season of difficulty. Lord, we would walk with you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So the last pick in the NFL draft every year is called Mr. Irrelevant. It's called Mr. Irrelevant because there is a 99% chance that he will not make it through training camp. Uh, in 2022, Mr. Irrelevant, the last pick of the draft was held by the San Francisco 49ers. And they picked for Mr. Irrelevant, every football fan knows his name is? Brock Purdy. Yeah, you don't care too much for him either. Apparently not a lot of 49ers fans here. And that's okay, because you don't even, you may not even want them to win to appreciate a story like Brock Purdy. Next week, he's going to lead them into the Super Bowl. And so, um, uh, we love stories like that. The story of the underdog that makes good. The stories of the Galileos, the stories of the, you know, Frederick Douglass, born in slavery, becomes one of the great leaders of the 19th century. Uh, Einstein, after graduation, can't get a job. Anybody looking for a job? Find encouragement. And Einstein, uh, Rosa Parks. We love these stories, partially because we know not only are they underdogs, but we know the rest of the story. We know the end of the story. But it's kind of a whole different thing when we're the underdog and the story hasn't been finished yet, how do you find strength then? It's really important. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Okay, how do you have good cheer? How do you overcome? How do you rise above when you feel like life's crumbled all around you? This is important as well. I love the line from Dill Carnegie who observed, 
Most of the important things in this world have been accomplished by people who kept on trying when there seemed to be no hope at all. Anybody feel like you're in a situation where you feel kind of hopeless, kind of helpless, and you're having a hard time continuing to try? That's the situation that Joseph finds himself in. This morning, we continue our series of messages through the life of Joseph. The series began three weeks ago as a seven-weeks series, uh, and then COVID decided to kick me around for a couple of weeks, and now this seven-week series is a nine-week series because we skipped those two weeks, and we're picking up here today. The second story in Joseph's life is a time when his life falls apart. The first few years of Joseph's life have actually been pretty good, but now things fall apart and yet he's able to overcome. So what can we learn from him today so that we can rise above and find encouragement and hope in our difficult times too when we get knocked down? The first thing I want you to appreciate is that Joseph gets knocked down. You know why his life falls apart? Because his dad sets him up for trouble. Nice. Verse 12 says, Joseph's brothers had gone to pasture the father's flocks in Shechem. Israel, or Jacob, his dad, said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing the flocks in Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. Any dad with just a little bit of objectivity and wisdom would have recognized this is trouble. Don't do it would have recognized that Joseph's brothers would not respond well to a situation like this. Bro, Joseph's brothers, he's 17 years old. For 17 years, their resentments and angers have built up toward Joseph. They resented him because he was his dad's favorite. And dad didn't try to make the situation better by downplaying it. He gave him this royal robe, and then Joseph made it worse by wearing the robe all the time. Not only that, but Joseph was not just close to God, but Joseph also uh, had these dreams given by God, and he told his brothers, God, give me a dream. And one day, the dream says, I'm going to be lifted up, and you're going to bow to me. His brothers already despise him. He, has this, he doesn't pick up on the fact that they're not liking the, him telling this, the dream, but he gets another dream. He tells them again. The Bible says that they resented him all the more because of his dreams. For 17 years, this resentment has been building up, and they're just ready to explode. And now Jacob says, I'm sending you to be their supervisor. You're the youngest, but I'm putting you over them. I want you to spy on them for me. Really? He also should have noticed (laughs) how dangerous this was because they had a reputation for hostility. If you turn back the clock to Genesis chapter 34, there was a time when their sister Dinah was raped by a man named Shechem. And Shechem says, but I want to marry her. The brothers are so angry. They say, okay, we'll let you marry her, but... But, you know, we're Hebrew, we're circumcised, first circumcise all the men in your town, and then we'll let you marry her. Bible says, as they're still in the recovery room, 
the brothers took their swords, Genesis 34, 25, went into the unsuspecting city and killed every male. Jacob's sons came to slaughter and plunder the city because of the sister who had been defiled. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives, and plundered everything in their houses. This is not justice. This is bloodthirst. How does Jacob respond when he finds out? Verse 30, Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, interesting, not the oldest son, younger sons, you brought trouble on me. He doesn't do anything about it. He just says, you know, it's going to be hard to do business with these people now that you've killed all their neighbors. Fast forward now, Joseph is 17 years old. These angry brothers have been allowing their bitterness to build up for 17 years. And Jacob says, go spy on them. How could he have been so foolish? Several lessons we learn from here, just quickly, a couple. First, we ought to learn from the brother's example about the danger of allowing bitterness and envy to build. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Joseph's brothers have allowed this envy and anger to build in a way that it's not just going to affect them, it's going to defile many for years to come. We need to, we need to, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to re- learn from this example because we live in a generation that is giving you permission for envy and anger. We live in a generation that says envy is good, anger is justified if you envy somebody else. Now, the Bible says in James chapter 3, verse 14, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, such wisdom does not come down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And where there's envy and selfish ambition, there you have disorder in every evil practice. But politicians will campaign this year and basically say to you, if you have envy and selfish ambition, vote for me, I'll satisfy your envy and selfish ambition. Because you're justified to be envious. It's not fair that others may have more than you. The Bible says envy and selfish ambition are demonic. 24-hour news networks say if you have envy and selfish ambition, be a talking head. It makes for good ratings. The Bible says envy and selfish ambition lead to disorder and evil practices. The world says if you have envy and selfish ambition, you'll be able to run a business well. You'll prosper in business. You ought to lead a protest march and we'll honor you for that. You can loot stores. You can build a social media following. Bitterness takes root and causes trouble though and defiles a generation. Children of God, we need to rise above that. But again, we go back to the question of Jacob. How could Jacob miss it as a parent, the anger in his sons? I wonder if he missed it because like a lot of parents, he was just really busy. He didn't spend much time or enough time with his kids. He was busy doing all this stuff, so he missed it. I wonder if he missed it because he minimized it. It's natural for parents, right, to say, well, boys will be boys. It's just a phase. They'll grow out of it. It's no big deal. I wonder, (laughs) 
I, I, from my own personal experience, I wonder if it's just because he wasn't sure what to do about it. Maybe he recognized the problem, but he was like, but I don't even know how to make a difference. How, what I can... if, if Jacob had seen their behavior as a cry for help, rather than ignoring it, minimizing it, throwing up his hands, if he had prayed, God, what do I need to do? How do I help? Boy, it could have saved everybody from so much trouble. Parents, don't minimize. There's more to be said about that. Don't send your kids into hostile territory. There's a lot more to be said about that. Um, I'm going to spend about 15 minutes on it this week in a devotional that I'm going to do. Um, even, even our government officials are recognizing the danger of throwing our kids into social media unprepared, for instance. Well, life falls apart for Joseph, not just because of his dad, but because of his brothers and their attack on him. It's kind of interesting, verse 13, though, Joseph's response when Jacob says, I'm going to send you, Joseph says, I'm ready. <laughs> 17 years old. That's pretty impressive for a 17-year-old. How many 17-year-olds dad says, I have a big job for you to do? They just respond, okay, I'm ready. If I'm 17 years old and dad says that to me, you know what I say? I say, but dad, I had plans. I was going to wash the sheep this afternoon. You know, I had homework that I was going to do. Friends that are to see. No, I'm ready. I'm Joseph is not rebellious. You know, he may be naive. He may be proud. But what 17-year-old isn't proud and naive? But he's humble. He has a servant's heart. And God, those are characteristics that God is going to use to mold greatness in him. He goes to Shechem. A man sees him wandering in the field, says, what are you looking for? Verse 16, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are? Verse 17, well, they moved on from here. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Again, a little insight into Joseph's character. He's responsible. All dad said was, go to Shechem and see your brothers. He could have said, I did what dad asked. I went to Shechem. Now I'm going home. He didn't do the least that he could do. He did the best that he could do. How unusual that is for a 17-year-old. How that unusual that is for me. How that unusual for adults, right? How easy it is just to kind of get, do as little as possible. I'm surprised at young people. I'm surprised at how much trash kids leave around during our camps. It's like they eat and they'll just leave their trash on the floor or on the floor for somebody else. When you're at home, kids, do you clean up after yourself? Do you put your own dishes in the dishwasher? If there are dishes in the sink, do you say, oh, I'm going to leave that for somebody else? Or do you say, I'm going to take responsibility? That's what, responsibility. That's what Joseph did. When you come to church, when you're part of the church, do you say, I'm going to do the least that I can do, somebody else can do it, or are you going to say, I'm going to do the best that I can do? How can I make a difference? How can I serve? That's Joseph. Joseph really is impressive, even as a 17-year-old. Verse 18 said, they saw Joseph coming in a distance before he had reached them. They plotted to kill him. Can't you see how this conversation goes? They say to one another, look, here comes the, that dream expert. Now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into the pit and say a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. See, <laughs> they're not going to let God's will come. They're going to be able to stop those dreams from coming true. Cass Sustine said, be careful of angry people in a group. He, he said, when like-minded people get together, they often 
they often end up thinking a more extreme version of what they thought before they started to talk to one another. B.F. Skinner said, mobs rush in where individuals fear to tread. People will do things when encouraged by the crowd that they would never do on their own, which is part of the danger of social media and 24-hour news where you can go find the people who say what you believe and they can talk you up into a frenzy. And so rioters throw rocks and smash windows and loot stores, burn down buildings. People on social media throw around insults. Drunken fans throw beer and punches. In church, cat lovers boo the preacher when he has some kind of cat joke. Angry people in a mob, beware of them. Joseph's brothers see him at a distance. You can almost see the conversation. Man, I just despise, can't stand, I'd love to wring his neck. I'd love to kill him. Let's throw him in the pit. Then did he mean it at first? I don't know, probably not. But the more they start to talk, the more... The bigger the talk became, the more bold they became. And then once they got there, they felt like they had to back up their words. Now, Reuben is the oldest, and so he's the one who's most responsible. So he tries to pump the brakes. If something bad happens to Joseph, it's going on Reuben's shoulders more than anybody else. And so in verse 21, when Reuben heard this, he tried to save Joseph from them. He said, let's not take his life. Don't shed blood. Throw him into the pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him little insight. See, Reuben was intending to rescue him from them and return him to the father. Reuben was going to leave here in a second, and he thought, I'm going to sneak around and let him go. Reuben, though, Reuben is kind of the patron saint for this generation. He knows what's right and wrong, but he's afraid to stand for it because it'll be unpopular. He'll be the only voice he fears. And he doesn't want to seem extreme. He doesn't know how they'll respond to him. Maybe they'll respond to me the way that they're responding to Joseph at this point. And so what's he do? He tries to find a moderate position. What people today sometimes call trying to find a third way. No, it's not bad if you can find a moderate position that's still biblical and ethical. Not all bad to avoid unnecessary conflict. But Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You see, there are some people that are like, peace at all costs. Want to avoid all conflicts. That's Reuben. Coward. Jesus said in Luke 6, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. What are you when you're the person who's afraid to be seen as an extreme? And by the way, the more our world strays from Scripture, the more extreme biblical truth is going to be. But there are some people so afraid of being linked with these people that they kind of look down on because the world looks down on them. They try to find some moderate position. They know what's right, but they don't have the moral courage to stand because they want to appear reasonable. 
Reuben suggests a third way, and history condemns him for it. The thing about God's truth is it's consistent with reality. God's morality is consistent with how the world really works. And the thing about reality is it, it always has a way of fighting back eventually. We see that here in verse 23, Reuben has left. And when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped, they stripped his robe, his long-sleeved robe that he had on. They took him, threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water. Remember those kids at the rock concert that were kidnapped by Hamas, stripped, beaten, thrown into caves? Can you imagine the terror in Joseph's eyes, stripped, beaten, special coat torn to shreds, pleads for mercy, no mercy, terror in his eyes. Verse 25 is a weird phrase. They sat down to eat a meal. Essentially, they still have blood on their hands. And somebody says, I feel like fried chicken. It's like, what kind of conscience? I could be hungry at this point. But when they looked up, there was a caravan, probably a grand caravan, of Israel Ishmaelites coming. Thank you for appreciating that. Coming from dad. Yeah, dad jokes. Okay, you can use that later on, dad. Coming from Gilead, the camels were carrying aromatic Gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. What a coincidence, you say. They just happen to be going down to Egypt at this time when they're thinking about what to do with Joseph. 19th century poet said, we see dimly in the present what is small and what is great. Slow of faith, how weak an arm may turn the iron helm of fate. Standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. What a small thing. It's just a very mo small moment. They just happen to be talking about what to do with Joseph. And this caravan headed down to Egypt just happens to pass by. God is working in the shadows to break Joseph's pride, to build his character, to, to teach him leadership and organization, to put him in the royal in the royal palace so that in the future, in more than 10 years in the future, when the opportunity arises, when the need is there, Joseph is ready not just to bless the generation, but actually to save his brothers from death. Verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. He is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers agreed. They were just looking for somebody to have leadership. By the way, put a note there on Judah. He's going to show up. The very next chapter is about Judah, and it just we're not going to deal with it, but it just shows you what a wicked person Judah is. Verse 28, when, the Midian, when Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. So Reuben is off taking care of business. He comes back around try, looking for Joseph in the pit and he discovers he's gone. Verse 31, when Reuben returned and he saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He's sick to his stomach. He says to his brother, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? I'm in trouble now. So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered the male goat and dipped, dipped the robe in its blood, sent the long sleeve robe to their father and said, we found this, examine it. 
is it your son's robe or not? Isn't that kind of interesting? Not a complete deception, but just a partial one. We're pretty good at that. The, 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 the league board votes and says, we've made this decision for the best of the players. No, you haven't. It's for the best of the organization. The politician says, I want to do this because it's the will of the people. It's not the will of the people. It's the will of the people you want to vote for you. Pretty good at those half-truths. You send half-truths on social media, by the way. Shows the pictures that, like, you are the, having the ideal vacation. Actually, you argue the whole time. Whatever. Verse 33 says, His father recognized the bloody coat. It's my son's robe. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth around his waist and mourned for his son's for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol. I will go down to the grave to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. Now put yourself in the place of one of the sons. You see your dad more distraught than you've ever seen him before. What do you do if you have just a little bit of heart? Don't you say, Dad, it's not true. Joseph is still alive. He's down in Egypt. Let's go down and get him. But they don't. It says, I think, it says they try to comfort him. But they didn't offer him the comfort that would bring him most comfort. Meanwhile, Joseph is chained like William Wallace in brave heart, bound hand and foot, being dragged, headed to Egypt. His head is spinning. What is happening to me? I woke up this morning like I always have. And now I'm in chains. Now I'm a slave. Now I'm headed to Egypt. Will I ever see home again? Life is like that. Have you noticed that? How quickly it can change. You think you're in control. You think it's st- things don't change for a long time. And then all of a sudden, something happens. All of a sudden, your sister calls Dad's had a heart attack. All of a sudden, you're in the middle of a meeting, gets interrupted. There's a plane that's just slammed into the Pentagon. Pentagon's on fire. The doctor calls, your baby's blood work is questionable. You see an earring in the bedroom, and it's not yours. You're driving down 66, listening to sports radio like you have year after year, headed to work, and then all of a sudden, the tire blows, and the next thing you know, you wake up and you're seeing, you're looking at the top, at the ceiling of a, of a hospital room. What in the world just happened to me? Life is like that, isn't it? Job said, Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. But David said, Even though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Joseph at this point looks hopeless, looks helpless, except for one thing the Lord is with him. And that's our hope as well. Bloodied in chains, lucky to be alive. But it says in verse 6, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. Literally, the words there are the captain of the slaughterers. He's probably over all of the prisons of the Pharaoh 
probably Pharaoh's chief executioner. In other words, nobody ever confuses him for Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Pharaoh doesn't spend a whole lot of time worrying about creating safe spaces for his slaves. This is a brutal time for Joseph. And Joseph is just like, what in the world? Can you imagine going to bed? If Joseph going to sleep that night, sold in slavery, the chief of slaughterers. What in the world is going on? What would you do if God let that kind of thing happen in your life? Would you deconstruct your faith? Would you say, how can I believe in a God if he's letting me suffer so much like this? It'd be so easy. I, I don't know. I hope I would respond well. Joseph was faithful. Verse 39, or chapter 39, verse 2 says, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became success, a successful man serving in the household of his Egyptian master. Joseph just said, I'm going to serve. Do the best that I can. It would have been so easy for him to say, I am not going to help out these people. I am not going to let them prosper. I am not a slave. I'm a child of Abraham. I don't deserve to be treated like this. I am not going to do what I can to help them. What's in it for me? God, where are you? Instead, he put his head down and he worked with a good attitude. Colossians 3, 23 in the New Testament says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord, not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. That's how Joseph worked. Think about it. He couldn't work for a paycheck. He couldn't work for a promotion. He couldn't work for advancement. He couldn't work for a new car or a bigger house. Joseph had nothing to work for except the Lord. Nothing to hope in except the Lord will reward me if I'm faithful. A lot to respect about the 17-year-old boy. He worked for an audience of one. As a result, his master noticed, verse 3, when his master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. Somebody said, when you walk with God, there are marks that even people of the world can see. It's true. By the way, that's the philosophy behind the end zone. We want people to experience God before they know it's God they're experiencing. We want people to come into this place and say, huh, there's something different about this place. And for people to know that God is a good God because we serve them well, because we serve them with this place. Joseph served, which is a pretty good example of how to follow God in the most difficult circumstances. Again, he could have said, I'm oppressed, they're oppressors, I'm going to bring them down. But he didn't play the victim. He said, I'm a child of God. I'm loved by God. My life, my future is in God's hands. I will serve the Lord. And the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Well, we're going to leave it there and we'll pick it up next week in the 39th chapter 
if you've ever known anybody theoretically who's experienced sexual temptation, you may appreciate the message next week that deals with that. Before we go, though, a couple of applications. How do you rise above when life is falling apart? First of all, in good days, be thankful. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7.14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, considered, God has made the one as well as the other. Joseph had 17 years of prosperity and joy. Hope he enjoyed them. Hope he was thankful. They would set him up for this time. But now he's in adversity. Second thing I would say is then when you find yourself in adversity, remember that helplessness is a choice. Refuse to quit. Joseph has options. He could have said, I'm a slave, I'm in chains, I'm stuck, what can I do? And just had a bad attitude and moaned. But he realized the Lord is with me and he served God every day. By the way, if the Lord is not with Joseph, he's toast. If Joseph is in Egypt as a slave, and he feels like he has to be in control, like what he does is gonna control things, like he doesn't have a heavenly father who is loving him and superior over all of this, he is in despair and helpless. And if that's your situation, learn from Joseph. He walked with the Lord and he realized if God is for me, who can be against me? Last message, I shared with you a little story, a little bit about Eddie Rickenbacker, who was a World War I pilot, ace of aces, one of the most famous men to come out of World War I in the United States. Years later, when he's 52 years old, it's during, the, uh, he, uh, during World War II, he is president of Eastern Airlines. He's flying to Atlanta. Before they land, the plane comes down and too low and crashes. The people look at him and say, who found him said he's more dead than alive. The doctors look at him and they were discussing, what do we do with him? And they realized if we don't do anything, he's going to die. However, if we do what needs to be done, if we put him through these surgeries, he may die as well. And so the doctor in charge said, he may die here, but we're not going to do anything that kills him. Rickenbacker overheard that and said, nuts get me a good osteopath and I'll be out of here in three days. So they did. They did the surgery. He wasn't out in three days. He wasn't even fully recovered. Four months later, when he accepted an assignment by the president of the United States, FDR sent him with a secret message to uh, General MacArthur. Um, uh, apparently, it took that just not anybody could deliver this message to MacArthur because of MacArthur, whatever. So they needed somebody with status and, and chutzpah. And so they sent Rickenbacker. He was flying over the Pacific for four, four months after the crash in Atlanta. This plane crashes. The, Rickenbacker and seven of the men struggled to survive for 24 days on three small rafts. They all began to lose hope, except Rickenbacker refused to let them lose hope. If somebody did something or said something that would damage morale, he stopped it. If somebody started talking like a quitter, he shut him up. And he began telling stories from his own experience. He began telling them of the number of times that he was near death and yet how he always made it out. And then 
he started prayer meetings. There was one person that had a Bible on them. And so twice a day, they would read the Bible together and they would pray together and they would sing hymns that they could remember anyway together. Rickenbacker himself said these men had never suffered. This was the first time that they'd really suffered and they didn't know how to attack it. I heard that and I thought, oh my word, I don't know how to suffer, I'm sure, compared to them. He kept them focused, though, on what they could do. They could read the Bible. They could pray. They could look for rain, for water to drink. They could fish best they could. One of the survivors said, Rickover deserves the credit for keeping us alive. He was the only one who never lost hope because he knew he always had choices. They were not helpless. Some people say suffering makes people better. You ever hear that? No, it doesn't always. Sometimes it makes them warriors. Sometimes it makes them quitters. Sometimes people say we have no options. We're hopeless. They get stressed out and they run. They leave the marriage. They abandon the family. They quit the church. They give up on responsibilities. They escape to alcohol and drugs. They give up on God. But when trouble hit Joseph, he refused to quit and think like a victim. He went to work day to day saying, I'm going to be faithful today. I'm going to be as faithful as I can today. And the Lord was with him. That leads us to the final application, which is what do you focus on if you have no other options, if you have no other choices? You always have the choice to keep your eyes focused on God. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to praise God. I'm going to thank God. I'm going to do what God wants right now. That's what Joseph did. He never lost sight of God. That's what Rick, Rickenbacker did. He read the Bible. They prayed together. He, had, he led them to. In fact, one of the others who survived that uh, ordeal said, you know what brought them comfort? He said, I'll never forget reading Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. In the middle of the Pacific Ocean, they're starving to death. They're thirsty. And they read the words of Jesus, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. And they found strength. And not only did it save them from despair, but one of the men, James Whitaker, had been an atheist. But he discovered the Lord is with Rick and Bob. The Lord is with us. And he gave his life to Christ, and he wrote a book about his conversion. When trouble hits, the Lord is with you, but you must turn to him. You must choose to turn to him. You must, and I'm not saying it's easy. It's a whole lot easier to preach about it than to actually do it. Um, and candidly, one of the things that I'm afraid of is sometimes the people who can talk most strongly about it are the people who are weakest in actually doing it. You have to be thankful. You have to choose to praise God. You have to choose to keep serving. You have to choose to keep being faithful. Choose to work. Choose a good attitude. My grandmother, at the end of her life, was dying of multiple myeloma. Multiple myeloma is a cancer that makes your bones brittle so they just keep splintering off, causes great pain. By the time my grandfather, my grandmother passed away, a little, I'm not making it up, it just she looked like a concentration camp survivor, just bones. 
but she chose. What do you do when you're in that situation? How many options do you have? You know what she chose? She chose to be kind. She chose to be thoughtful. She chose to be concerned about, I don't want to be a burden to my nurses. She chose to be pleasant. And the nurses said, told us more over and over again how much they enjoyed working with my grandmother. What a blessing she was. How encouraging it was to be around her. She had choices. We have choices. And the Lord will be with us if we follow him. God doesn't promise that we'll never feel the fire. He just promises that in the fire, he will not let us be destroyed. We need to keep our eyes focused on him. And we need to remember, there's no sunrise without a night, and there's no resurrection without a cross. Ken Mead is the man who performed our wedding. My wife, Laura's minister, home minister. He preached for us several years ago before he passed away. One of the most joyful people I've ever known, he would sign his emails with the words, keep looking up, God is always there. That's how Joseph lived. I want you to hear that today. If you're going through the most difficult times, keep looking up. The Lord is with you. Heavenly Father, would you help us to rise above when life around us seems to be falling apart. Um, Father, I'm, my heart is heavy because there's so many people that in moments like this, in times like this, they are deconstructing their faith. If they were to go through what Joseph's going through, they would just deny that you must be good or you're present or what's the use even if you are present. Um, God, there are people right now hearing this prayer who feel like they're in the pits, they feel like they're bound and can't see much hope. Help us to see you and to know that you are with us and with you on our side. We are a majority. We can make it. Lord, speak to us right now. Encourage. Lead us to you through Christ, I pray. Amen.